find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy... The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stand forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, we pray this morning for the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray as we have uh, read and considered and thought on these verses, that they mean nothing to us without your help. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see and understand, our ears to hear, our hearts to believe what is taught here about your Son, Jesus. I pray, O Lord, that the seriousness and the urgency of this text would be pressed home by your Spirit on all of our hearts. We would all leave here with joy, trusting Jesus, the one who opens the door for us to go in to the wedding feast. Speak to us, O Lord, for we, your servants, are listening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Randall Wallace was a Hollywood screenwriter, and he wrote about a decade ago uh, a romance story that was made into a movie, and it was set uh, in the period of World War II. And it was a young man and a young woman who had fallen in love. Uh, He was stationed in Hawaii uh, right before Pearl Harbor, and uh, they they had promised to each other that after the war, he's going to come back, and they're going to get married. Well, he goes off to war. He's a pilot. Uh, His plane is tragically shot down. Uh, He is lost at sea. There's no word. There's no sign of him. Girlfriend back home gets the message, and she does what any of us would have did. She waits. She hopes against hope. Maybe he's still out there. Maybe he's alive. Maybe he will one day come home to me. But as the months pass, and as the months turn into years, the hope begins to fade. The belief that he'll return begins to dissipate. And she does what nobody can blame her for doing. She meets another man. 
and she marries another man, and they begin to live the happily ever after life, except, you know it's coming, <laughs> the first boyfriend didn't die. He was captured. He was in a prisoner of war camp. Nobody knew for years. And he returns, and he comes home to take his girlfriend and marry her. And there she is with another man. The whole the story goes on. It's, it's, it's tragic for all three parties involved, right? But what we know about this woman is that she moved on, as we would have as well, because she didn't believe her boyfriend was going to return. If she believed he was going to return, she would have lived one way. She lost faith that he would return, and so she lived an entirely different way. But Jesus is pressing onto us in these verses, in these chapters. It's not a romance story, although it does involve a wedding. It's the truth that he's going to return. And most of the world, let's just be honest, doesn't believe that Jesus is going to come back. And so most of the world lives a different way. For those of us who believe his words that he is going to come back, we live a very different way. Where we're going dictates how we live today. And in these parables, Jesus is showing us how the Christian's life is markedly different from the rest of the world because we believe in this really weird thing, right? <laughs> that a guy came and died and is alive again and is in heaven and he's coming back. And if you and I believe that, our lives are marked by something that's very different from our neighbors who don't believe that. Or to phrase it another way, I want to show you in these verses that those who believe in Christ's return will bear fruit of that faith. Those who believe in the return of Jesus will bear some specific fruit in our life. Our lives will be lived in a certain way because we're marked by that faith in the return of Jesus. Not just the sort of Christianity is a good thing, Jesus is a good moral model, God's a nice sort of spirit up in the sky, none of that. Jesus is going to return. And if we believe it, how do we then live our lives? What I want to show you in these verses are the fruit that is produced by believing in the return of Jesus. Remember what we learned last week. Two key lessons. Lesson number one, Jesus will return. We saw that in verses 29 to 35. Lesson number two, you don't know when he's going to return. Lesson verses 36 to 42. Two key truths. He will return. You don't know when, the angels don't know when, the disciples didn't know when, Jesus himself tells us he didn't know when. So we live with some knowledge, but not all the knowledge, right? Enough knowledge to kind of get us in trouble, right? Or enough knowledge that we live in light of that return, bearing the fruit of that faith. Believing in Christ's return produces three fruits in our lives. Each of these parables, I'm going to show you, highlight a different fruit. The parables are very similar these ideas uh, overlap and they intermix as Jesus is really making uh, one big point. So the first fruit we see in verses 43 and 44 is watchfulness. A people who believe in the return of Jesus will be marked by watchfulness. You also call that awareness. You call it maybe vigilance, right? This parable is one verse. So look with me at verse 43. Uh, Jesus can tell an entire story in one sentence. Verse 43. Know this, if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. The whole story there, right, in that one little parable, right? There's a, a master who owns a house. A thief comes to break into the house. 
The master doesn't know what time the thief's coming. Usually thieves don't schedule with the master when they're going to break in, right? So he's not awake. He's not aware. He's not ready. Now, this is not how my favorite movie of all time goes, Home Alone, right? I know you big Home Alone fans out there. The kid in Home Alone is left home alone, and the bad guys are going to come break in. And the kid knows what time they're going to break in, right? Or else there's no plot to the awesome movie, okay? That kid knows this master doesn't know, okay? The thief, like any thief worth their salt, comes at an unexpected time. That's it. And that's the whole parable. The master doesn't know when the thief's coming. The thief is unexpected. The master is caught by surprise, and therefore he gets robbed. He's not ready. What's the lesson from the parable? Verse 44, Jesus tells us the lesson. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. A couple connections here. You know, sometimes our minds run wild when we read parables. We want everything to mean something. But Jesus tells us some, something that means something here in particular. He compares himself to a thief. That's fascinating, right? Jesus compares himself to a thief who comes at night. His point is not that he's a bad guy, he's going to steal. Right? That, that's not his point. The point is purely that you do not expect it. You can read all the biblical prophecy books in the world. You can go to all the, the conferences about when he's coming back, and he's going to come back when you don't expect it. That's the nature of his return. It will be sudden, and it will be completely un- unexpected. The Apostle Paul elaborates on this idea uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Listen to what he writes. He writes, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake, keep awake and be sober. That's Jesus' warning last week, right? Keep awake. Stay awake. Awakeness. Alertness. Sober. We used to think of sober as meaning not drunk, right? That's actually going to happen in the next parable. There is a guy that goes and gets drunk, uh, and he is pictured as one who's not ready. The soberness here is more than just being not drunk. It's a seriousness, right? It's a, when, in the metaphor, somebody drinks, they aren't alert. They're not watchful. Sober is ready, alert, watchful. Paul goes on to write in verse 8 of chapter 5, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So to summarize that, to be sober is to be marked by faith and hope. That's what, that which looks towards the future. Or as we read in Hebrews, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Jesus is telling them to be sober. He's telling us to be watchful, to be alert, to be ready. How do we apply that? What does that look like in our lives? It's probably going to look different uh, for all of us, right? I think... At one point, there's, there's simply an attitude of attentiveness. There's a, a spiritual watchfulness. The psalmist says in Psalm 130, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. 
to watchmen enduring the dark, cold, scary nights can't wait for the morning to come. So they're very alert, looking east. When's the sun going to come up, right? The spiritual parallel is that followers of Jesus are even more watchful, even more ready and alert and vigilant in preparation for his return. It means we, we keep his return regularly on our hearts and minds. How do you do that? Maybe you could give me some suggestions after church, right? How do we do that? How, how, what does that look like in our lives? Do you find yourself going through an entire day never thinking Jesus could return today? A, an entire week, a month, a year, a, de- a lifetime, right? We can, Paul tells us just the, the safety and security of life. Or as Jesus used last week in Noah's day, they're just eating and drinking. They're married, they're getting married, they're given in marriage. Life's just going on in a normal way, and so we're, are, we are desensitized to the truth of the return of Jesus. I think another way we do this is we, as we watch and as we yearn for him to come back, and as he doesn't come back, we stubbornly refuse to turn to anything else. I mean, that poor woman, right, who lost the man she loved, nobody blames her for going and getting married to somebody else. But in, in, in reality, there's nowhere else for us to go. <laughs> there's nowhere else to whom we, we, we turn. We're tempted to, right? I mean, I've been following Jesus these, these five years, and he hasn't come back yet, and my life's still a mess. Maybe it's time to try out something else. Maybe after a decade, right? Maybe after a generation. Maybe at the end of a lifetime. Watchfulness is a stubborn refusal to turn to anything else to turn to anyone else. If you're waiting for the sun to come up, you don't look west, right? (laughs) You don't look north, you don't look south, right? You look east. So is spiritual watchfulness looking for the return of Jesus. As we move on, we're going to find out there's more required than a passive watchfulness. There's actually more that we we do. And I'll show you the second fruit, verses 45 to 51, and that's the fruit of faithfulness. Number one, watchfulness. Number two is faithfulness. What characterizes the lives of God's people as they wait for Jesus to return? In a word, faithfulness. He tells us this in this next parable of the two servants, or the one servant that could have gone two different directions. Depends how how you read it. Uh, This verse tells us of a wise servant and a wicked servant. And Jesus tells us in both cases, what does the servant do? One acts wisely, one acts um, uh, wickedly. And what are the consequences of those decisions and actions? So look, look at each of one. First is the wise servant, verses 45 uh, to 47. The master leaves home, and he leaves a servant in charge while he's gone. The first servant, the wise servant, what does he do during the master's absence? Well, verse 45 tells us he gives them, the rest of the household, their food at its proper time. Sounds like nothing, right? But it's pretty important. Make sure everybody gets fed while the master's gone. Right? My wife likes to say, if she's not around, the dog's going to starve to death, right? Because I'm going to forget every time. <laughs> somebody in your house feeds the cat and the dog, and somebody always forgets, all right? This servant doesn't forget, all right? He's in charge. He feeds everybody. Make sure they get their food at the right. And that's pretty basic, right? He needs some water, some food, and some shelter, and they'll be all right while the master's gone. This guy gets it. Verse 46, 
What are the consequences of his actions? Blessed is that servant. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes, when he returns. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. It's quite a promotion, right? Uh, This reads to me just like Joseph in the Old Testament, the end of Genesis. He's found faithful in his calling, and he is elevated. He is promoted to authority over so much more. So happens with this servant. Now, do you know Jesus describes him as wise? Why is he wise? You know what he, he, he knows what he doesn't know. That's his wisdom. Because he doesn't know when Jesus is going to return. So it's like, that guy doesn't know much, right? No, he, he knows what he doesn't know, and he acts according to his lack of knowledge. You see that? Let me see in a second. The fool thinks he knows. The wise man knows he doesn't know. And he's ready. He's not surprised by the return of Jesus. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, three square meals a day. He's ready, right? What about the wicked servant? Same responsibility. Master leaves, leaves the guy in charge. What does he do? Verse 48. But that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. All right, be honest. When you were a teenager left home alone for the first time, which one of these two describes you better, right? I know some of y'all were doing some of the stuff listed there under the wicked servant. It's what good movies are made of, right? What do we do when the parents leave? He carouses, he eats and drinks with drunkards. He begins to beat his uh, fellow servants. In a word, unfaithful to the responsibility the master has given him. The master returns, verse 50, on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour He does not know. He's caught by surprise. Both servants are caught by surprise. One is feeding the rest of the people. The other is getting drunk. And then verse 51. Here's the consequence. He will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Remember who he called hypocrites a couple chapters ago? The Pharisees. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is, you know this, that is shorthand that Jesus uses to describe hell itself. Now this wicked servant is a fool. Why is he a fool? Because look what he says in verse 48. He says, my master is delayed. He thinks he knows. Right? The wise servant knows master will come back at any time. The foolish servant says, ah, it's not going to be for a while. I got time. I can go do whatever I want. Right. I can clean up the, the, the aftermath of the party later before dad gets home, right? The fool is living for the moment. You see that? He's living for the moment and he's blind to the future. And we could look around us and say, yeah, that's the fools of the world. Or we could look within our own hearts and say, yeah, I've got this same tendency, don't I? I have this same temptation, don't I? To live for the moment, to live for myself, to live for the day. And to be blind to the return of Jesus. That's just the parable. What's the lesson from this parable? What lesson does Jesus pull from this parable? Well, this tells us everyone is accountable to Jesus. Everyone is accountable to Jesus. Let me say something that might sound hard to some of you. You don't get to choose 
whether you're accountable to Jesus or not. It's him. He's the king. And he's coming back. And every single person will be called to give an account. You probably want to know what you have to give an account for, right? That seems pretty important. The master in the parable gives a task to the servants. And they are found faithful or unfaithful based upon their following and their obedience to the task assigned to them. So the disciples are going to want to know what task is Jesus going to assign to them. Because the master is telling them, Jesus is the master, and he's saying, I'm leaving. And he leaves, and he's going to leave them with a task that they are to be busy doing until he returns again. And I believe that task is what we are to be busy doing still today. The disciples don't know it yet. They're going to get to this uh, climactic verse at the end of Matthew Uh, We're going to get to this, of course, in a couple months. But Matthew 28, many of you have memorized the Great Commission. And Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's his marching orders. That's the task that he gives to the disciples. And they are to go forth, and we see in the book of Acts, they go do that. And it continues in the early church, and it continues through the, the next generation. And our Lord, between his first coming and his second coming, has sent his people, his church, his followers, his disciples with a task to go and make disciples. To spread his gospel. That he would gather and grow people, men, women, and children, into faithful disciples of Jesus who themselves will gather and grow. It is the commission that God gives the church. He doesn't give it to each one of you as an individual. You don't need to read the Great Commission and think, that's a lot. I'm not sure I can fulfill that. You can't. Nobody can. The Holy Spirit, through his people, his church, in every, in every time throughout the world, sends forth his people to make disciples and accomplish that Great Commission. What does that have to do with us? You've heard the phrase, maybe around Earth Day, right, to think globally and act locally, right? You've heard this phrase? You should recycle, right, throw that can in recycling, right? The Great Commission is a global task. And we think about the Great Commission, we think about acting locally. We think about how does our individual vocation line up with the Great Commission? I mean, in this room, we've got one-year-olds up to 90-plus-year-olds, right? You have, some of you are full-time working, some of you are full-time students, some of you are retired, right? You're in different places of your life. But God has called, if you're a Christian, every one of you to be involved in the task of the Great Commission to make disciples to the ends of the earth. And he has gifted you in special and unique ways in service of Christ and his church. And if we are to be busy with the task that the master has left us, then we understand where has our Lord called us to act locally in this global commission. What season of life are we in? What gifts and strengths do we have? How can we love and serve the body of Christ? How can we love and serve our neighbors? How can we love and and, and serve our missionaries and the purpose of mission? You You are called, every one of you, if you're a Christian, to be a steward of that which God has entrusted to you. He has entrusted gifts to you. He has gifted every single one of you. 
Kids, do not think that God has forgotten about you. He has given you very special gifts. If you feel old and tired and maybe you can't use the gifts like you once were, that's a lie. Our Lord has gifted you as well. If you are busy burning the candle at both ends, God calls you in your vocation to somehow serve his great commission. We are stewards of time. We are stewards of our resources. We are stewards of our gifts. Do we spend those getting drunk on ourselves or about the Lord's task? Jesus is calling his church to stay on mission. He came and died to serve us, that we then might go and serve him as we serve one another. Faithfulness is what our Lord calls us to as we await his return. As we go to the third parable, it's worth noting that Jesus highlights in one parable people who are surprised that he returns earlier than they think he will. And the next parable, people are surprised because he returns later than they think he will. So he doesn't tell us he's going to be early or late. He tells us, oh, and tell me if you've heard this yet, you're not going to know, right? You're going to be surprised. It will be later than you expect. It will be sooner than you expect. So be prepared. That's our third fruit, preparedness. Verses 1 to 13. Those who believe in the return of Jesus are marked by the fruit of preparedness. Uh, we come to the parable of uh, the ten virgins, kind of a confusing title. You could just think of it as parable of uh, the ten bridesmaids, uh, sort of in the context of the day. Young woman getting married had uh, her sort of lady attendants with her called virgins in the time we think of them as bridesmaids today, right? So what's going on in this context, different from how we do weddings, is you've got a groom and his guys at one house, his house getting ready. And you've got the bride and the bridesmaids, the virgins, at her house getting ready. And then the groom takes his guys, and they go process to the bride's house. And they get her and the bridesmaids, and then they process back to the groom's house for the wedding. Usually it takes a while to get ready, get all, everything ready, so they have torches, right, to light up the night uh, as they go. It can be a long wait. Now, I've been, uh, as a pastor, part of many weddings, and I find it funny that Jesus tells us that it's the girls waiting on the guys, right? Most weddings I've been at, it's the other way around, right? The groom, the grooms and the groomsmen, I mean, they've been done for hours. Right? There's twiddling their thumbs, just waiting. The bridesmaids, all ten of them, are prepared for the arrival. This is what they're looking for. They go to the house, they wait for the arrival of the groom and, and, and the guys so they can process back. They're all there. They all have their lamps. They're all ready for this, right? What they're not all ready for is a delay. You see that? Every one of them is looking forward to the arrival of the groom. But not all of them are prepared for that arrival to come late. Those, Jesus says, in unflinching terms are the fools. The fools, the groom comes, gets five of them as they're ready. They all have their lamps. There's only five of them that have enough oil to light it up for the procession back. The other five are out of oil. They didn't bring any extra, so they got to go buy some. In the delay to go buy some, and they get it, they come to the wedding, they knock on the door, closed. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
The parable is clear. The lesson is simple. Be prepared. Be prepared. You Boy Scouts in the room, you know what that looks like physically, right? You've you, you got the skills to be prepared for whatever comes at you. This is not a physical preparedness. This is not a bomb shelter. This is not preppers, right? This is a spiritual preparedness. And the way we're prepared, if you miss anything else in the sermon, get this. Here's how you prepare. It's three words. Trust Jesus today. Three words. That's it. Trust Jesus today. I'm not going to send you out of here with a list of everything you need to do to be prepared. I've got one way for you to be prepared. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. Why is it so important? Why is it so important to trust Christ today? Let me give you three reasons. Because number one, preparedness cannot be passed on. Preparedness cannot be passed on. What do we learn from this? The ones who aren't prepared, they can't get from the ones who are prepared. Let's say it another way. Faith is non-transferable. All right, kids in the room, your parents love you. They have brought you to church because they want you to know Jesus. They want you to hear the promises of God and to believe them. They bring you in at a young age. They put up with your squirming, right, and your cries because they want you to hear about Jesus. Our congregation loves kids in here because we want them to hear about Jesus. And believe in him. Because your parents trusting in Jesus doesn't get passed on to you. You trust him on your own. You believe on Jesus on your own. And there's no reason for you not to believe him today. Everything mom and dad have told you about the promises of God are true. Everything I've told you uh, poorly from this pulpit is true. Believe upon Jesus yourself today. You will come in to the everlasting wedding feast. Parents in the room, I've seen this before, where parents, adults are in a church for years and decades, and they're just sort of half-heartedly there, just kind of showing up because it's the thing to do. And their children come to faith in Christ, and it is wonderful, and their children are on fire for the Lord. And you ask those parents, How are you, how's your walk with Jesus? And they answer, well, my kid's going nuts, right? <laughs> my kid's reading the Bible an hour a day. They're going off to this cool Christian camp. They're going to serve the Lord uh, in the vocation where they've called. And I don't look at you parents and say, their faith is not transferable up to you. You yourself need to trust Jesus. Maybe your spouse is the more spiritual one in the family. And you're thinking, I know I don't really, doesn't really mean anything to me, but my wife's on fire, right? No, faith is not transferable. You don't get credit for going to a good church. You don't get credit for giving a certain amount. The Lord looks upon his people, and he looks to faith in Jesus. That's why this is so serious. It can't be passed on. You can't borrow it. It needs to be yours. The second reason the preparedness is so important is because faith cannot be put off. Faith cannot be put off. There was plenty of time for the five foolish bridesmaids to get their own oil. They had plenty of time. They had plenty of opportunity. And they decided they didn't need to do it then. 
you may be deciding, well, not today, Pastor. Maybe next year. Maybe after I get through the fun of going to college, right? Maybe after I go to high school and get my license, right? Maybe after I work a dead-end job and need to dull and numb myself with any sort of addictive behavior in the world. Maybe when that's all over with, yeah, then I can follow you. They didn't know when he would come, and we don't know. The time to trust Jesus is right now, is today. The Lord has sent his own son to die upon a cross, that on that cross he would not merely suffer human pain, which he did, but upon that cross is poured out on him the entire wrath of God. It is poured upon Jesus in those horrible hours that he might, in his victory over the grave, come and offer to sinful people the forgiveness he has achieved on the cross 2,000 years ago. Don't wait another day. Trust in our Lord even now. Faith cannot be put off. But there's a third and final reason why preparedness is so important. And it's this, because faith cannot be proven now. I know that might sound funny, but bear with me. I'm not trying to undercut your assurance of faith. If you're a Christian, I hope you're sure. It's a beautiful thing. What I want you to see here is that nobody knew who was prepared and who was unprepared until the the groom came. Everyone in that house thought they were prepared. And nobody knew any different until there was a delay, until Jesus came. The difference between the wise and the fool is preparedness. But preparedness is not revealed until the moment of crisis. It's not revealed until all of a sudden they realize they're not prepared. So let me ask you this. How do you know if you are prepared? Of course, I went back to the simple answer. You trust Jesus today. That's one way to know for sure. You've heard of big security companies or the military performing what's called an emergency preparedness test. Run a test to see if we're ready for an emergency, right? School does it with a fire alarm, right? That's essentially an emergency preparedness test. Because what Jesus is telling us is there is an emergency, there is a crisis, there is his return that is coming at the end of history. How do we know if we're prepared for that big crisis? Let's look at how we respond to some smaller crises in our life. One author says, nothing more will more correctly reveal what is in a man than the coming upon him of some crushing and unlooked-for crisis. Anytime in the last couple years, have you had an unlooked-for crisis in your life? I wonder if those foolish bridesmaids thought, man, if only we'd had a fire drill, right? (laughs) If only somebody had told us. We do, y'all. We do have a warning. I want you to think about how you have reacted to the last crisis in your life. The last time you got that unexpected bad news, where did your heart go? In what or in whom did you place your faith? Did everything look good on the outside? Coat, tie, sitting in the pew, morning, evening, you got, got all those boxes checked, whatever it is. But what about in that moment of crisis, right? When, when the cards are down and what does it reveal about your own faith? 
but to tell you if you're prepared or not. Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't look other places. Come and believe and trust in Christ today. Close with this idea. What are the results of being prepared or not for trusting in Jesus? There's two results. There's a grave warning to those who are unprepared. The warning is a shut door. A shut door. That is a metaphor for the door of heaven, which right now stands wide open for every one of us. I don't know if it will be open in 10 minutes because we don't know when the Lord will return. That is a grave warning because nobody wants to see that shut door. But look at the the flip side. Look at the, the matchless promise of these verses. Look at verse 10. And while they, that's the foolish ones, were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. They went in with him. The door stood open to those who were ready. Not because they worked through their checklist. Not because they spent months on their knees and and crying in conviction over sin. No, they believed upon Jesus. And they were saved. This is how Charles Spurgeon describes that verse. He says, these words sound to my ear and heart like the pealing of wedding bells. Listen. These people had been in the battle fighting as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, but by and by, they went in with him to the marriage. They had been in the Lord's vineyard, toiling amid the burden and heat of the day. The sun had looked upon them, and they were bronzed and browned with the burning heat. But in due time, they went in with him to the wedding feast. They had sometimes seen their Lord for a season, and then they had missed him for a while. But they went in with him to the marriage. They had even wandered from him sometimes. And darkness had surrounded them. And they had wickedly fallen asleep when they ought to have watched. But they went in with him to the marriage. Oh, the blessedness of being where all evil is forever ended. And all joy is begun never to end. All sin and imperfection blotted out by Christ's precious blood and all holiness and perfection put upon us forever and ever. Be prepared. Trust Christ. And we too will go in with him to the marriage. Let's pray. Our Father, we have a simple prayer this morning. And that is that you would open our hearts to believe. Would you give us the gift of faith? Assure our hearts that we are ready and at peace with you because we trust no one and nothing else but Jesus. We praise you, O God, that that door stands open. Grant us faith. We all might come in, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing of the cross and the blood that holds